The final Grand Slam of the year is upon us, and boy, do we have a lot of narratives. Will Novak Djokovic achieve the calendar Grand Slam, or will a teenager surprise the entire world and take home the year's final major? All that and more to come on Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo, and joining me, as he always does, and well, we're very excited about this show because, well, the US Open has been jam-packed, is Joel Frucci. Joel, how are you? Welcome to Primetime US Open. Oh, God, don't start. Don't. Don't start me. <laughs> I had to. I had to. No, I'm all right, Val. How are you, mate? What a what a tournament it's been. Bloody hell. Yeah, it certainly has been, Joel. And joining us to dissect a little bit of it later on will be Chris Clary, veteran tennis journo from, uh, from the New York Times. And he's on the ground in New York. He's tennis media royalty. And he is going to talk about his new book, The Master, The Long Run and Career and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. Books, uh, the book is available in all good bookstores. But can't wait to talk to him about inside his interviews with Roger Federer, what he's made of the well, one in my opinion, the greatest of all time, and um, and and also the U.S. Open. So really keen to talk to him. But Joel, the U.S. Open at the moment, a crowds are back. B, oh, the narr- oh, it's just been awesome. But the matches that we have seen, we've seen the women's the longest women's match uh, in terms of minutes broken twice on the same day, and it was the exact same time, which. Even more bizarre. Almost for a third time as well. Yeah, literally today, almost for a third time, the time of recording this, um, Bianca Andreescu has just uh, fallen to uh, Maria Sakari. So uh, an astonishing, astonishing uh, week and a half of tennis, a week and a bit of tennis, because we've seen Novak Djokovic pushed in three of his four matches as he is on his quest to win uh, the fourth major, or his fourth major of the year and uh, complete the calendar slam, which hasn't been done since uh, 1969 in Rod Laver. But we've also got, on the women's side, Emma Raducanu, who made the Wimbledon uh, fourth round. A- a- an amazing story there, but she's gone one better at the US. She's in the quarters. Layla Fernandez, what a story that one is, because we weren't expecting her to Brilliant. do these things at 18 years old, but that's exactly what she's done. Carlos Alcaraz, what a what a beautiful name that is, but he plays tennis in Galibos. an even, even more beautiful manner because what he was able to do against Stefano Tsitsipas in round three, the whole Tsitsipas saga, what happened there? How many bathroom breaks did he need? I, I don't know. Um, and now it's coined the, the phrase between the two of us, we're going to take a Tsitsipas. Um, <laughs> there's been a little bit of that going around over, over social media. But look, yeah. what have you made of the tournament so far and, and what have the highlights been for you? Oh, geez. Where do you start, Val? I mean, <laughs> there's honestly so many places we could go with this. I think, I don't know, I think, I think for me, um, there, I think the young talent time has probably been um, <laughs> what, I've, what I've really enjoyed. Um, and you couple that with, uh, with crowds being back, you know, full house at, in Ash. Um, it's just been great seeing, seeing people like Carlos Alcaraz, Leila Fernandez, um, etc. It's been great. Even um, Jensen Brooksby today up against Novak Djokovic um, couldn't quite get it done. I think you and I both probably knew that as soon as he won that first set, he wasn't going to win the match. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's just been great. And when you put those things together, um, the American crowd really get behind the young players as well. And it's happened on both sides of the draw, which has been great. More often than not, we we uh, we, we we find ourselves talking about it on the on the women's half. Mm. Um, as opposed to the men's side, but it's actually happened on both sides. And even probably for the majority of the first week, what was really great was that all these upsets were happening on the ATP side. The WTA side was the side that... The stable I one. Guess the, 
yeah, it was the stable one uh, where, I guess, in quotation marks, the uh, the reliable results were happening. Um, you know, the ones that we were expecting. So, look, I don't know. It's been it's been, I guess, refreshing in that sense that you know that that's kind of had a bit of a shake up as well. So. Look all around. It's just been a, a, a wonderful tournament, and um, you know, every morning I'm sure my uh, employers aren't very happy about it. But uh, the TV's been on uh, prime time. US Open has been uh, right, right. <laughs> I had to say it. I love saying that. Just it's been on TV. We've been able to watch it, and it's just been absolutely fantastic. I've loved every minute of it. Well, the late nights have been really beneficial for us because it goes until about 3 oh, o'clock yeah. in the afternoon Melbourne time, so it's absolutely great. Um, but yeah, we, we will get to the coverage. We will get to that. Don't you bloody worry because I've got a bone to pick. Um, but yeah. look, it's it, it, well, commencing with the men's side, I, I think with the, the overarching storyline from this tournament is the Djokovic Grand Slam quest and whether he can pull it off. Now he's reached the quarterfinals and he's at a point where he's got to play three players who he has beaten in big matches in majors this year. He beat Zverev in four, a very tight four-set match at the Australian Open uh, in the quarterfinals. And Zverev arguably had chances to win that. He was up a break in the third and the fourth. So probably should have won, especially if Novak had his inverted quotes, abdominal strain. Um, and then you've got the the French Open quarterfinals where he beat Matteo Berrettini and the Wimbledon final as well. So two matches, two big matches he's beaten Berrettini at. Then you have Medvedev. Should Medvedev get to the final and should Djokovic meet him there, it's a rematch of the Australian Open final. Can Novak get through those three matches after playing, well, four, well, the second round against um, Talon Griegsball probably wasn't as... Uh, physically taxing as his other three matches. Yeah. The first match against Olga Rune was just brilliant. Abs- and Rune, hopefully we are going to get him on the show in the next few weeks. Correspondence with the manager. I think fingers it, crossed. Fingers crossed. Let's hope. Um, we know, yeah. we know these, we, we just need, we need, uh, we need Mrs. Rune to pull through for us. Yep, we do. And hopefully we can, I can send them some Ikea bags or something um, that'll get them uh-huh. a, the famous footage now of him walking out onto center court with an Ikea bag. It's absolutely brilliant. But, um, yeah, Holger Rune pushed him to four, just cramped up after three qualifying matches. Then you got Kane Ishikori taking the first and elongated first set um, from Novak. And then you have the match against Jensen Brooksby today. Brooksby had him on toast in that first set and was in his head, really had chances just the second set and then the sheer volume of tennis that he'd played. Four sets in his first two rounds and then an epic against Aslan Karatsev in round three. Then you've got now Berrettini, Zverev and Medvedev. That's the current path. That's what it looks like based on seeding and based on where people should be. Is this going to be... uh, uh, Look, personally, I'm not sure he can do it just based on the form, but Novak has proved us wrong many, many times. This Mm. would arguably be one of the greatest achievements in the history of tennis if he can pull it off. But can he pull it off? The three plays he's up against, uh, If, as I said, if it does go that way, can he pull it off? It is difficult. It, well, he definitely can pull it off. In short, he absolutely can pull it off. And I think at this point, um, we'd be we'd be nuts to bet against Novak. Really, I mean, how many times though have we have we talked about who can who can topple him? Um, but that, it, it, and- we have, but we haven't seen. He he's shown a few chinks in the armor this time. Yes, he, he did has. that at the Australian Open. But I think the belief of a lot of players now is that they can take it to him. 
Medvedev will not play a match as bad as he did at the Australian Open final. Berrettini's no. had two experiences against him now in the last two majors, taken it to four both times, but a close four. And then you've got Zverev, who has the recent win over Novak. He's, I don't think he's got that mystique about him as what he did at Wimbledon. I, I, I think ever since the Olympics, things have kind of just transcended a little bit. Is he injured? How's he feeling? That That's the big question. So it, it's all down to that. If he's at 100%, then yes, mm. I, I agree with you. I think he he will do it. But I don't know that he will this time. I, I just think there's always that one slip up. And if he can achieve it, it would go a long way in the history. And people remember this year for the rest of their lives. Oh, big time. Well, it'd be an incredible achievement. And we talk about, I guess, Novak's not looking his best. He has dropped a few sets against Polgaroon, against um, Jensen Brooksby and against uh, Kane Nishikori as well. But, and we were talking about this uh, a, a bit earlier today, Val. And, and we've already mentioned it briefly on the show. Like when, when Novak loses that first set or when he loses a second set, I mean, we talk about tennis and how it's, it's not over until it's over. There is never, there is no truer turn of phrase that's more applicable to Novak Djokovic when he's involved because that guy just, we just, he's the most incredible fighter I think that we've ever seen. Um, so, I mean, and you look at guys like Matteo Berrettini and Alex Alexander Zverev, and there's no doubt that they're a different class to what he's already come up against. With, with, well, in fairness to those other guys, um, but I mean, for me, that counts for a lot anyway. Um, when we look at Matteo and and Alex, I'm not sure Matteo can get the job done, but if Alex was able to do it, I wouldn't be surprised. I think if anyone's going to topple Novak, he's going to be the guy because he's. This is the best I've ever seen him play. Um, one Cincinnati, one goal at the Olympics. This is his moment. He's he's made the final already at the US Open. As we know, lost against Dominic Team last year. Fell over from two sets to love up. Who knows, maybe if he gets there. Well, I mean, he won't play Novak in the final. It would be a semifinal. Um, but look, if, if anyone's going to topple Novak, I think Alex is the guy. I, I can't really see Novak losing against anyone else. I think it's got to be Alex. He, for me, is the most informed guy at the moment on the tour. Maybe, maybe other than Novak, because you just even in the situation that he's in, he hasn't looked his best. But you, you just you can't count him out for a second. But what about Medvedev? What 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 can he do? Is he a guy that you feel yeah. that, can, that can beat Novak? He's gone through again without dropping the set over the first week, over the first week and a bit. The first four rounds, he's twelve from twelve in sets. What do you think he can conjure up? His draw has opened up considerably with Tsitsipas going out, with Rublev going out, um, with Diego Schwartzman going out. So what can he pull? Mm. Yeah, look, he's had a pretty good run, Danil. Um, and he's got the final experience. He's played in the US Open final before. Obviously played, as you said, in the Australian Open final and and lost comfortably Um against Novak. I think for Danil, I don't know. I mean, the way I look at his chances in the final, if it is Novak that he comes up against, if he gets there, of course, if Danil gets there, um, is that I, I just can't help but feel that if he is to play Novak in the final, just everything is going to have to go right for him. Um, the serve's going to have to be on point and just the ground strokes as well. He's going to have to stay in the rallies. I think that's going to be really important for for Daniil, we just we know how quickly Novak can just flick the switch from offense to defense. So I think Daniil, if if he's going to be the guy, he's just going to have to find a way just to 
just to go with him. Um, and I, I just, I just don't know if he has the mental capability or the physical capability to really go with him. And that's not to say that he, he, he doesn't. I'm just, I'm just not sure that it's quite up to what it, it uh, is going to have to be to, to get over and over. And that's what I was going to say. He has to go with him mentally because the Australian Open was and, – and look, he beat Novak and he has a really good record against Novak and generally pretty handy getting a set at least. The Australian Open final was something different. Medvedev was not there mentally at all. The first set, yeah. up to five all, he was. Came back from a breakdown. The rallies were going toe-to-toe. As soon as Novak got that opening set, that was it. That was the match. Medvedev needs to ensure that he gets the opening set if he does play Djokovic. And this is all hypothetical. This is all if Medvedev gets to the final and has to play Novak. He needs to make sure that he gets that opening set because he needs that foothold. And if he's at least got mm. some sort of foothold in the match, he's never out of it. But I think what can give us the solace and what can give us the hope that Medvedev might be able to conjure something up against Novak is that two sets to love down against Rafael Nadal at the 2019 US Open. And then again, what, 5-1 down in the fifth. Almost got it back to 5-all. He knows how to come back from big deficits and he knows how to put pressure on his opponents. Novak, different kettle of fish. When he's a front runner, he's very hard to beat. But I think if anybody can do it, I think you're right with Zverev, but I do think Medvedev can, but he just has to stay mentally strong. But look, his next matchup is one of intrigue generally because Baltic van der Zandschup, um Very good, Val. Very I tried. Good. I went for it. Um, what a run for him coming through qualifying and then all of a sudden he's he's made it through to his maiden Grand Slam quarterfinal, which is just... It, it is... A phenomenal story. We had the the fairy tale of Aslan Karatsev getting through to the semis at the Australian Open, but he's come through over qualifying uh, over um, Marcelo Tomas Barrios Vera in the first round of qualies. That was in three. Uh, he lost the first set there. Then he's come over an American Ben Shelton lost the first set in that match as well. Then he's come over um, Enzo Concacar of France lost the first set in that encounter. Lost the first set against Carlos Taberna of Spain. Lost the first two sets, actually, and came back. Then he beat Kaspar Ruud after losing the first set. Then he beat Fajundo Bagnis after losing the first set in round three. Finally wins the set in round four, wins the first two, and Diego Schwartzman manages to push it to four hours and 20. <laughs> he had match points in the fourth, served for it. Uh, Schwartzman pushed it to five. We all thought it was over. Um, the Dutchman wins the uh, the fifth set 6-1 and um, sets up that quarterfinal matchup with Daniel Medvedev. Staggering run from him. Staggering run from Karlov Alcaraz. Uh, he'll take on Felix Auger-Aliassime, who, again, his record before turning 22 is something in itself. Lloyd Harris uh, also continuing his fine year. He's yeah, in the he's unreal. in the quarterfinals. Uh, quarterfinals, geez, that sounded terrible. Um, and then Novak Djokovic against Matteo Berrettini. So one of the quarterfinals doesn't have either of the top eight seeds. Another two only have one. And then, and both, and I think there's one, two, three unseeded players. And then you got Djokovic and Berrettini. All of them have their little idiosyncrasies that you look at and go, geez, there's some really awesome stories in that. But Van der Zandschup, what he's been able to do is just, it, it beggars belief. This stuff doesn't happen at slams, but we've seen it twice in the same year. Hmm. Yeah, well, I'm just marvelling at your uh, pronunciation there, Val, of uh, Van der Zandschup. Uh, Took a very, lot very of good. practice. 
Yeah, yeah, we both uh, we both practiced it a little bit before the show just to uh, make sure that we were uh, on point there. Um, but again, it's it's nice that we're seeing it on on the men's side because we've seen it a few times with the women in the last couple of years. We saw Nadia Podoroska do it, um, Martina Trevisan as well. So yeah, I mean it's it's been good and it's just been another uh, another component really of of this tournament that's made it so memorable coming back from you know no crowds in in the COVID era to just exploding back to life yeah you're right and and look we'll, we'll talk about before we get to the women's I think I think the one issue that we've had throughout this entire men's draw is the bathroom breaks because yes. Stefano Tsitsipas against Andy Murray loses the third set goes off or loses the fourth set one of one of those two goes off pivotal point in the match I think it was after the fourth and he's gone to use the bathroom. He's taken his bag with him. Same thing happened in Cincinnati against Alexander Zverev, but this time he took his phone in Cincinnati. And then the cameras uh, rightly panned up to Apostolos texting someone at the exact same time. So who knows? Yeah, it's not great. Who knows what was going on there? And we can't prove unless someone grabs Apostolos's phone or Steph's phone and, uh, and checks the messages and what time they were sent. But it's, look, I don't like it. It's within the rules, but I don't like it. It's gamesmanship, and we don't need to see it. We yeah. don't need to see an eight-minute break in between sets when you should. I think you should cap it at four because it really doesn't take that long to change your clothes, Joel. If you're trying to get back for a match, you can easily do it in a couple of minutes. You change your socks, you change your jocks if you need to, you change your top, you change your shorts. It's done. It's really not that hard. Yep. Then if you have to go make number twos after that, you do that. But you try and do it quickly not to deter your opponent. But the jeers and boos that came from the second round match of Sissipas and then third round against Alcaraz, he and then Alcaraz followed him off the court and then got cheered. So it was completely, <laughs> it was absolutely, it was unreal what we were witnessing. And honestly, I, I just, I, I don't like it. But the problem is Murray took to Twitter and took to social media and his, um, and his press conference saying, I lost respect for him and it takes Jeff Bezos mm. Um, a shorter amount of time to get to space than it does for Tsitsipas <laughs> to go to the bathroom. But then you've got other people that are repeat offenders in doing this as well that don't get that don't get ridiculed for it. Novak, for example, he does it all the oh. time. How many injuries has <laughs> he faked? And how many medical timeouts has he t- Like It's just <laughs> ridiculous how Tsitsipas can be looked pointed as the villain, but Novak, who who has done it for longer and worse, can't or doesn't get doesn't get ridiculed enough for it. And then you've got Roberto Bautista Agu, who does the same thing. He takes a long time in between points, and we saw it with Nick Kyrgios as well. He was only about, what, four and a half minutes, five minutes, but still uh, he does it in pivotal points in matches. And there's so many other players that have done it. Fernando Gonzalez used to do it as well, used to take bathroom breaks. And how can this be policed? Well, I think the great thing about about this is that there's – and there's a clear distinction as well between the rules around you know changing bathroom breaks, whatever, and medical timeouts that we've also been talking a bit about this year and last year. I think with with MTOs, it's just littered with grey areas because it's not really on the umpire to determine whether an injury is in quotation marks real or fake. Mm. Um, that one's that one's going to always going to be tricky. But I think with with what we're looking at at the moment. It's very easy to legislate against because the rule, the rule stipulates a reasonable amount of time. Now that's that's very grey and open to interpretation. So 
if you want to crack down on it, it's pretty easy to crack down on. You just change, take out reasonable and you put, you attach a number to it. Mm -hmm. Say, I think four or five minutes is probably all right. Maybe four minutes. Cause it's, it's been around about eight minutes is the time that we've been looking at, at the U S open that Stephanos and some players have been taking. So I think maybe if you just, you change that and you just slap a four on it. You've got four minutes, do your business, you back out on court. And Darren Cahill was saying this on the coverage as well. For every minute that a player goes beyond that time, you get a warning, then you lose a serve, then you lose a point. Yep, I heard this as well. Yeah, and he was saying, and I completely agree with him, you tighten up those rules to make sure it's black and white and bring in point deductions, serve losses. Game deductions. It will never happen. And you're, yeah, game deductions, it won't happen. And that is that is 100% on the money. And this is why Darren Cahill is the MVP of the ESPN coverage because yeah, he's, the best. He, he's good and he's he comes up with these good ideas as well. And I think that's what they need to police. But even with a medical timeout, I know it's all he, shed, he said, she said. God, that was... I'm I'm on fire today with these poor sayings. Um, he said, she said. But can a doctor not give their medical opinion and their expert opinion on on an injury? And it's like, oh, look, yeah, they're a little bit tight here, but like, really, I don't think it's anything to be worried about. Um, it really depends on on what the prognosis is. Uh, but you can't be taking too long, and you can't be taking multiple breaks. It's or the eight minutes is just it's just unfathomable. But um, look, it's a problem for another day. And, and Brad Gilbert as well um, on Twitter today said, when the slams get to 2022, they need to be they need to be looked at. And those times need to yeah. be looked at. But I think the ATP and WTA sure. need to be looking at these times as well because it is absolutely ludicrous, the fact that eight minutes is allowed and nobody was penalized. And Paul Murray, his body just went completely cold and lost a bit of momentum. Yeah. And, and that was that. But... Moving on to the women's, Joel, the women's side of the tournament. This has been just as exciting. We lost Osaka early. Uh, we lost her to Layla Fernandez in an epic encounter. We lost Ash Barty to Shelby Rogers after, well, it's fair to say it, a choke. And we've still got, yep. uh, well, what happened between Garbinia Muguruza and Barbara Krejcikova? Oh, boy. Ooh, that was icy. That was icy, wasn't it? And <laughs> Yeah, that was... Um... Honestly, though, that was one of the more strange post-game scenes that I think I can remember on on a tennis court. Obviously, in that set, uh, Gabinia was looking down and out, and she just stormed back into the match like a runaway train um, and really pushed Barbora, who, in the end, was looking really out of it, I think is probably the best way to put it. It looked like she was having a, a breathing problem, and... Look, I have no doubt at all that in that tiebreaker, there was something wrong. There's, there's no doubt about that. There was clearly something up. But yeah, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't really like her going to the towel after every single point. That could have been avoided. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, look, you can kind of see why she was doing it if she was out of breath and stuff, but it's not really what that's for. So... Yeah, I don't know. And then and then for Gardinia at the... I actually thought that they weren't going to shake hands, but to her credit, she handled it pretty well. She went and shook Babora's hand. And yeah, for her to, to call her unprofessional, I mean, really, really said it all. Um, and then 
obviously after that, uh, Barbora just sat in the chair with uh, her head in her hands for probably a good five plus minutes and she didn't do the post-match interview. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a really, really odd scene. Um, and yeah, I'm not really, not really sure where to go from there. Um, yeah, no. it was just, uh, it was just a really strange set of events. Yeah, you're, you're right. And, and looking at, you know, looking at what she went through, she was up for love in the second set after claiming the first and was steamrolling her way to victory before Magarutha managed to fight her way back and, and get it to a tie break. And, from from about five all, things started to look really difficult. I think it was a bit before that. And, and there was medical time out. There was the trainer called. And she was taking a lot of time on Muguruza's serve. And you have to play to the speed of the server. And that's yeah, what yeah. that's what she wasn't doing. And that's where Muguruza was getting frustrated. And I completely get that because you're not supposed to be doing that. I get she was in extreme physical difficulties and ailments. But... You just can't be doing that. And I think Muguruza, in a sense, was right. But then I think we all looked at it and there were boos and jeers in the crowd. But then we looked at what happened and there, and then we hear, uh, we see her crying and inconsolable on the court. And, yeah. then, and she apologised as well. She did say sorry, which credit to her. But mm. then you see that she needs help to get off the court. So it was, it was as you said, bizarre and strange yeah. and, and something it's- that we've never really seen, but yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's look, it's not exactly apples and oranges, but I think in that situation, you've only got to look as far as what Bianca Andreescu did against Maria Sakari uh, in that third set. It was, it was clear that she was just in all sorts of pain and yeah, she just kept fighting. So yeah, look, I think it probably just comes down to that. I mean, in, in the, in those crunch moments, especially as you said, when, when you're the receiver, you've just got to push on. Like you can't, you can't slow it down. You've just got to keep going, really. That's that's all there is to it. Just got to push on. Yeah, you're extremely right. And look, th- this women's draw has been monumental for many players. And we've seen the longest women's match at the US Open, as I said, broken twice. It was broken on the same day. And the matches ended at the Crazy. exact same time. So it was Anna Bogdan against Rebecca Masarova. Um, that one finished 6-7, 7-6, six, 7-6 seven, seven, six, seven, six in favour of Masarova. And then the next one between Elise Mertens and Rebecca Peterson, 3-6, 7-6, 7 in favour of Mertens. Both of those matches going the three-hour 40 mark. And then today, we've got one with Maria Sakari and Bianca Andreescu. That one goes not quite that long, but the latest women's finish in US Open history. And that one goes the way of Maria Sakari, 6-7, And Riesku just suffering some physical uh, difficulties towards the end of that one, just sheer lack of matches played. And Sakari's in pretty yeah. strong form. And she's it, it's been it's been remarkable, this draw. Losing Osaka, losing Barty, losing Halep, losing Kerber, losing that many of them. And we've just seen time and time again players show their resilience. And, and again, like the men's, we've only got, uh, one quarterfinal where both of the top eight seeds are facing off against each other. Yeah, it's great. Um, and I'm look. I might throw this out there, though. I'm I'm going to say um, if and if ever there was a time for two players that we've been talking about a lot, that it's just they've got to do something. Otherwise, they're going to they're going to miss the boat. Carolina Pliskova and Alina Spitalina or Alina Monfi, whatever we want to call her. They're still in the draw. They're in the last eight. This is as good a time as ever for them. They need to do something here. They have to. Yep. This is their time. I agree. Look, I think Pliskova is going to win the title. That's my pick at the moment, and we'll get to those later. But 
How heartbreaking would it be? And very similar to the Australian Open 2018 final where we saw Halep and Wozniacki face off. Neither had won a slam. It went yeah. deep into the third. You didn't want to see a loser. It would be heartbreaking again to see Svitolina and Pliskova take each other on in the final of this US Open. It would be yeah. awesome, but it would be devastating because both of them have been around the top 10 for a long time. Pliskova even more so than what Svitolina has. But, geez, it, it would genuinely be heartbreaking to see the two have to, one of them have to lose because you know it's going to end yeah. in heartbreak and then jubilation for the other. So, Arena Sabalenka is still in the draw as well against Barbara Krejcikova. Svitolina Fernandez, that one's going to be interesting. And then you've got Pliskova against Sakari, who's finished up at 2 a.m. New York time. And then Emma Raducanu against, well, she's floated through this draw and mm. been very, very, very underrated. Belinda Bencic, the Olympic gold medalist. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. I mean, we, we know obviously how she exited uh, at Wimbledon, Emma Raducanu. Had a really good run. Um, couldn't quite get over the line against Ayla Tomjanovic. Had to, of course, retire. So it's it's good that um, it's really, really nice that she's been able to back that up, sort of bursting onto the scene um, and then delivering uh, at another slam. I think that's really important, um, especially for young players when they kind of make that breakthrough. Um, and I'll be looking for this as well um, at the Australian Open next year with the likes of Carlos Alcaraz, Leila Fernandez as well, just if they can just solidify the progress they've made, this big jump. Um, so it's been great to see Emma Raducanu um, get this far. Just on that on that match battle between Karolina Pushkova and Maria Sakari, oh my God, that is going to be a hard-hitting match. Yeah, I feel <laughs> sorry for the balls. Oh yeah, I I cannot wait for it. There's going to be, I think, I reckon there's going to be a hell of a lot of unforced errors. But to be honest, the winner of that match, I think, is probably going to have to have more unforced errors. I agree, uh, than, and than than their opponent because Jesus, they are just going to hit hit the absolute cover off the ball. It's going to be power versus power. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of uh, of yellow fluff on the court, I assume, with all the fluff that's going to be hit off those balls. But yeah, you're right. Now, I, I think there's there's a lot of players here and and the beauty of the women's is that anybody can still win this we cannot rule anyone out there's not one player there who i don't think can win this grand slam it's just a matter of who's mentally prepared who's got the game on the day and then you have these same eight players in another grand slam in quarterfinal and all four of the results could be different so it's it's one that i'm really excited for and i think that the and the the word of the day, I think, has been narrative because there's so many at this US Open. And I think we've seen a lot already. We've seen a lot of three-setters, a lot of late nights, a lot of elongated matches, and um, and a lot of players make a name for themselves when not necessarily a lot of tennis fans or, or non-tennis fans would have known who they were. Botic van der Zanschlup, not many people knew who he was. Carlos Alcaraz, no one knew yep. who he was. And Chris Clary, um, the pronunciation that he has, you'll hear this later on, Ooh. of Carlos Alcaraz. Oh, phenomenal. That's why I've started saying it like that because I have to be in the same league. You just have to. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, and then on the women's side, Fernandez, the teenager. But can Sabalenka go, go through? She's been by far the second best player behind Ash Barty this year. Can she win her maiden slam? Um, the echo that's echoing through, I, I heard her screams all the way from Melbourne because of the sheer acoustics in uh, Arthur Ashe Stadium. They are, she's very loud, but she might be grunting her way to a Grand Slam title 
Um, and I'm I'm all for it. I'm all for any of these women winning it because they're all rightly there um, and they all deserve it. So only one former Grand Slam champion left in Barbara Krejcikova. Let's see who wins. But it's time for our chat with Chris Clary. And our first guest does join us on the show. And, well, he's tennis media royalty. He's a New York Times correspondent. He's at New York now for the US Open. And he's recently published a book, The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. His name is Christopher Clary. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. I know it's very late for you over there in NYC. But uh, how are you going and how are you finding the US Open? Oh, pleasure to be with you. Yeah, you know how it is with the U.S. Open and the Australian Open. <laughs> this is not actually all that late. After midnight it seems pretty normal after a while. That's sort of the way we're living. Um, nothing's going to match the uh, Leighton Hewitt and Marcos Bagdatis match from the Australian Open a few years back. I remember that watching the sunrise over there in uh, Fitzroy Gardens on the way back to the hotel. So it won't be like, won't be like that again, I don't think. At least I hope not. Uh-huh. It's been a great tournament, Val. Great it- tournament. It has been, and and talk to me about, we haven't seen a Grand Slam with full crowds since uh, the 2020 Australian Open, so talk to me about what you've felt in terms of the the vibe and and the atmosphere at uh, at Arthur Ashe Stadium and and the Billie Jean King Tennis Centre as a whole, because it has looked electric. Well, I have to say that, you know, the 2020 Australian Open for me was my last, uh, you know, Grand Slam of that year, that's for sure, and uh, that I saw in person. I covered the Islands at the end of the year remotely. And I really was missing seeing live sport, obviously, and live tennis. Came back and went to the French. That was kind of a little bit uh, back. At times, felt pretty good. Went to Wimbledon, which ended up being pretty good by the end. But this U.S. Open has been full on from the beginning. Um, You're looking at crowds of 50,000 per day. You know, it's been full day and night. The crowd has been really into it. I think it's, it's a very symbolic thing for both the players and the people here in the city to have this event back and to have uh, the noise and the volume. And I think the tennis has really, really improved and responded to that in a lot of ways. It's been a lot of great matches. Also a strange, strange, but in a way very um, special slam because no Roger Federer, no Rafael Nadal, no Williams sisters. First time in 25 years, at least one of those players has not been involved. So it's a different feel. And I think the players that wouldn't have got on the show courts are getting on the show courts getting a chance to show off their stuff. You're seeing players, uh, I think, feel there's more opportunity. And they're, they're right, there is. I mean, Novak is a dominant player on the men's side, but there's a lot more opportunity among the guys that are uh, positioning themselves. And I think uh, it's really been refreshing in a lot of ways. And I think it's the crowd, above all, I think is, I think just enjoyed seeing some new faces and also getting a chance to uh, to cheer loudly again and you know walk into the place they know well and have a few beers and enjoy it. So it, it feels very human, very... Uh, you know, very, uh, I guess, heartening is the word to have this this whole thing going on. That's exactly right. I'm watching from abroad. It is heartening to watch and, and seeing players like Francis Tiafo um, and a lot of the others really embrace the crowd and try and get the crowd involved into matches has been great to watch. But you mentioned the opportunity and the sheer narrative from this event because we've had Botic van der Zanschlup, uh Brent, um, Jensen Brooksby, uh, as well as Oscar Otte, all on the men's side, reaching the second week. And, and the women's side with no Osaka, no Ash Barty, the opportunity to actually take a Grand Slam is there for many players. So talk to us about what you found and, and how you found the, the narrative of the tournament and what the special one has been for you. Well, I mean, obviously the, the big story, as it should be, is, is Djokovic going for the Grand Slam. And I really just call it the Grand Slam. I'm not, I've never been a big... Uh, Serena slam, Joko slam thing. I mean, to me, the grand slam is all in the same calendar year and that's the way it's always been defined and that's the way we're going to call it. So 
Um, this is the attempt that hasn't been made in the men's game since Rod Laver. So that's a huge deal considering the era that Djokovic is in. It's taken him this long to get within range. So I'm fascinated by that. And I think that to me has been the dominant, if you will, big story that's here. On the women's side, I think it's, you know, it's been a chance to uh, appreciate some of these young talents. Layla Fernandez has really surprised me. I didn't think she was ready to do what she's done. Um, Raducanu, the Brit British player who's got so much charisma and uh, so well-spoken for her age and everything else, I think could be a big star. It's been nice to see her bounce back after her issue she had in, in, in London was sort of, uh, you know, not having um, being able to finish her match against Aya. And I think that was uh, nice to see that she was able to kind of bounce back and play so well here, qualifying, getting through these rounds. She's still in the tournament. So that's, that's all been good. I mean, I really enjoyed uh, that for me as a tennis guy, whenever you see special talents emerge, it's always exciting and you never really know until you see them in these big arenas and these big moments with where they have what it takes. So seeing Carlos Alcaraz from, uh, from Spain, another 18 year old, uh, just play so well against nice. Sitsipas and handle the moment. So that, that, you know, usually you get one of those a tournament. We've had three here really. So that's been with Fernandez and Raducanu and, and Alcaraz. So it's, it's been kind of an abundance of riches in the first week, but I think the second week ready to come down to, uh, Novak time, Novak going up against the guys, uh, the next generation when they can knock them off or not. We'll see. And that's you, you bang on because you've got Berrettini in the quarterfinals. Then you've got Alexander Zverev and Daniel Medvedev, all who have lost to Novak Djokovic at a Grand Slam in 2021. So uh, I think this is set up absolutely perfectly for that. But moving on, and, and one player that we mentioned isn't at this Grand Slam, and it is Roger Federer. And your recent book, The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer, it, it's selling by it, it's selling by the shelf. It is absolutely – I can't wait for it to arrive because we've had a backlog of, uh, of um, postal deliveries here in Australia with lockdown, so I'm very keen for this to arrive. But um, talk to us about the inspiration behind writing the book and, and how it came about. Well, Val, you know, for me – I've been doing this a long time. I mean, this is my, I started in sports writing in 1987. So my math has never been very good. I've been better at the English than I have been at the, at the math, but that's definitely over 30 years. And I've been covering tennis, not all the time exclusively during that period, but for a lot of that, it's been my main thing. So I kind of felt like when I started out, I started off with Agassi and Sampras and Courier and Chang as an American. And, uh, that seemed to me pretty hard to top. And that was an amazing era. Those guys all racked up you know, together, over 20 grand slams and, and were dominant personalities. And I was kind of close to their age. So for me, it was really fun to be part of that. And I thought I couldn't top that, but to be honest, this generation that we're seeing coming to an end now with the big three and Federer and Nadal and Djokovic has topped it. It's been extraordinary to be part of it. And I just, because of my paper who I represent with the New York times and, and my own experience in the sport, I just had a real ringside seat to this whole era and I got a chance to know Roger very early in his career and have a lot of opportunities to interview him over the years and also people around him. And I saw him in a lot of different places. And I also have had a chance to spend a lot of time around Djokovic and Nadal from an early age as well, all the way through. So to me, it just seemed like Roger obviously is the closest one to the end of his career. And it just seemed to me as 2019 came to a close, the loss to Djokovic in the Wimbledon final when Roger had had the two match points, didn't convert. You could sense these young guys were going to get better. It just felt like Roger's career was, had, I would say, peaked, but also I think the, his main body of work, I would say, was done. And so it seemed to me a good time to, to try to start working on a really comprehensive book about not just Roger's career, but this whole era. 
And I think the way to do that was through these rivalries. And, and I also felt like there have been books about Roger for sure already, and they weren't, they couldn't be complete. My book can't be complete either because he hasn't retired yet, but I feel like um, this one, because of all the access to his rivals is a, uh, is a really in-depth look. And I think it's got a couple different layers to it. And that really interested me to kind of delve into that whole thing and try to capture the era. And I also feel like, you know, really ultimately, why do you write a book? There's a couple people say you do it because you just got to tell the story. There's part of that. I think you also can look at it in the sense of, would you regret not doing it if you didn't do it? And that was really my case. I felt if I didn't do it and somebody else gave it a stab and I didn't, and I hadn't done it, I would really have a big regret because I just had this amazing access over this time. And I really had a lot of things I wanted to synthesize. So I was, you know, was able to go for it. And I'm, it was the hardest thing I've done, Val, without a doubt in my career, but I'm really glad I did it. And it, I managed to find the first few pages on an excerpt on Google uh, last night. And, and talk to me about the start. When you were sitting with him at the end of 2012 in a car in Argentina with the crowd in raptures around around it, how did you see the figure of Roger Federer in that in that situation where it was kind of he's, – he's always going to be at the height of his popularity because he's so well-loved – um, not just in tennis, but globally as, as sports fans just adore him. But talk to us about sort of the feeling and the aura about him when he's in that sort of situation and just in general, the, the man behind behind the scenes. Well, Roger, I can't profess, you know, I can't know him like people who are truly close to him would know him, like his, his wife or his, his close friends or his, his family. But I've seen him in a lot of different contexts. You know, I've interviewed him on six continents and I've followed him all over the world and seen him. And I think that's, that's part of the reason why the book is, is organized the way it is Val. It's organized around places. And I wanted to kind of capture Roger's global nature and try to get where he began, which is obviously Switzerland and South African connection as well. But I wanted to really get after the global aspect of Roger, because if you follow him around, you see him constantly adapting, constantly changing. Uh, I wouldn't say changing personality, but sort of finding new ways to make these places he's been to before interesting and places he hasn't been being fascinated by them. And so the Buenos Aires trip was an exhibition tour that he did in 2012 at the very end of the year. And that was one of those cases where he was in discovery mode. So he was like a little kid, to be honest with you. He was looking out the window and all the people are pressed up against the glass, following him in the car, chasing him through the streets of Buenos Aires. And you, and you would have thought that Roger at that time was very well established as a, as a sports star and a tennis star. But it was all new to him in some ways. He was taking it with wide eyes and um, you could sense a huge amount of enthusiasm for the road for him. His father was traveling with him, Robbie. Um, and you realize from hanging around Robbie and, and speaking to him as well, that the reason Roger uh, feels the way he does about the world and traveling really comes from his parents and from his father, especially his father was also like a little kid down there on this big journey with his son falling through South America. So I think I, I really was curious all through this process of going back and re-reporting a lot of the books, I talked to 80 people or so for the book itself, you know, aside from all the interviews I'd done through the years, was to try to really understand the process. What made Rogers successful? How was he able to keep that enthusiasm, that success, that energy, and the popularity for so long? And it's a, it's a very positive story in a lot of ways, but how the heck did he do it? And I think one of the ways he did do it was he always found a way, wherever he was, to... Uh, find something new that interested him, uh, make connections with people on a human level that would allow him to have a real exchange instead of just sort of being, here I am, Roger Federer, love me and listen to me. The guy asked a lot of questions, I got to tell you. He asked a lot of questions. He's a curious individual. He's somebody who uh, I think is not an academic person. He wouldn't have been a 
You know, he stopped school at 16, happily, I think. Wasn't a guy in the classroom. I think he had too much nervous energy for that. But you put him in the kind of the classroom of the world, and that Buenos Aires night was one of those classrooms. He's very happy with that, and I think he gets a lot out of it, and a lot more than many other athletes. Actually, probably any other athlete I've come across, to be honest with you. And so I, that, that, to me, that night was very emblematic of that. And also, I thought it felt like I was, you know, really with him at that point. I knew him pretty well already at that point. So I, th- I wanted to capture just kind of the, the connection that he, we had established to help kind of get the book off to a start of people understanding it's going to be a lot of exchanges in this book. And talk to me about the, the first time you interviewed Roger Federer and, and what that was like. And could, if, if you remember that far back, and could you tell back then that he was destined for something great? Well, it's interesting you ask that because the first time I saw Roger play at all in person was the against your guy, Patrick Rafter. 1999. 1999, this first Grand Slam match. And I was talking to a couple agents that I knew well. I've been covering tennis for, you know, over a decade by then. So I knew a lot of people already in the sport. And they said, you got to go watch this guy. I said, yeah, I know he's Wimbledon junior champion. It's no guarantee of anything. We all know, you know, you obviously can have some success, but then you really can't too. They said, no, this guy's special. You should go watch him. And you know why I know he's special? Because I don't even represent him. So therefore I have no, I have no skin in the game. So trust me. So I went out and watched him and, you know, Patrick lost a set to him. Patrick was number one in that world or close to it at that time. Good clay court player because of his ant bed days in Australia. And I think he uh, basically took it to Roger after that and sliced and diced him as Roger said, but you can see the flashes of, of talent and this athleticism and the speed and, you know, Roger looked a bit different than he had the cap on backwards like Leighton Hewitt and he had the baggy clothes like Pete Sampras and, you know, threw his racket a couple times or at least once anyway. So it was a diff- different Roger Federer than we came to know, but I was, I was intrigued. And then 2001 Davis cup was obviously a big deal then. And the U S was playing in Basel, Roger's hometown with our team. It wasn't our top team, but we had a lot of good players like Todd Martin and um, the chemical gamble and Andy Roddick actually made his debut there. And I've decided to go watch the U.S. team and ended up watching only Roger Federer because he ended up destroying us in, the, in that tie. And that's when I first got to interview him at that tie in Basel in 2001. And um, it wasn't a lengthy interview, but talked to him then. And it was already, you know, Roger, elegant player. I remember sitting up in the press box before Twitter when I would have probably tweeted it out. <laughs> said you're talking to people actually in those days. It was a much more human period of life and saying this guy you could just see it watching him. This guy is going to win Wimbledon multiple times. I, I don't usually have those kind of feelings, but you could just easily transpose him from this heart, this, this indoor court in Basel, the way he was moving and flowing and all over the court and half volleying and volleying winners away. He was meant to play on grass. I wasn't so clear on everything else at that point, but I, I just knew it. And um, other people probably would have had that epiphany before me, but I, in my case, that was definitely mine. And just talking to him then, he was already, you know, the Roger we know. Three languages, after matches, kind of that baritone sort of <laughs> monotonal voice, if you will, almost a little nasal. And also just a cool guy. You know, he definitely was switching around. He could find things amusing or not. And uh, and also, I think, discovering the power that he had, the amazing the amazing talent that he had was now rubbing up against these best players in the world and starting to realize, hmm, I can beat them. He, I think he suspected it, but now he was starting to really know it. And that was uh, that was great to be there from that, from that point in time, to see that from the start. And that was, of course, the year that he defeated Pete Sampras in that famous fourth round encounter at Wimbledon. And then from there on, it kind of started to, the wheels in motion kind of started to tick. But it was really, uh, I think the catalyst for, for Federer was the passing of Peter Carter, the Australian coach. And 
uh, and everything that he did for Federer and was trying to make him someone great in the sport because Federer was very temperamental, as we know, and as you said, he was smashing rackets, throwing them, and there's that famous footage of him kicking one um, as hard as he could. But uh, talk to us about the, what that did to Federer and it can't be understated the effect that Peter Carter still has on Roger Federer to this day. Well, I think Peter Carter, I think there's two, there are two ways to look at Peter Carter. One is the making of Roger's game. And Roger did not come from a big tennis family. His parents played recreationally. His mom was a pretty, you know, not, not a bad club player, but they took to the game late and picked it up late. And neither one of them was a professional sports person by any means. So Roger, obviously a very talented athlete, but I think you needed a guy like Peter Carter who had grown up, you know, playing in Adelaide. He was from this, from outside of Adelaide, but he was you know, trained there with Peter Smith and, and uh, produced so many great players over the years from that area. And, um, you know, John Fitzgerald, Leighton Hewitt, Woodford, all those players from there, Darren Cahill. So I think for Peter Carter to come into Roger's life in Basel, where he went there to play club tennis very randomly when he was on the pro circuit over there, he could have gone to almost any city in Switzerland or in Europe, but he ended up in Basel at Old Boys Club, which is Roger's club as a kid. If that hadn't happened, honestly, I I could easily think Roger would have gravitated to soccer because he was very talented or, or just not seen a window into the pro game. It just wasn't the only guy who was really great in men's tennis at that stage already was, I guess, Mark Rosé, obviously, you know, won the Olympic gold medal, but you had Heinz Gunthardt in the past, but there was, it was just not a huge tradition of men's tennis in Switzerland. So Roger could have gone a different direction, but Peter opened up, I think the pathways to Roger believing in his talent and also connected him as a junior to all the Australian greats that Peter, whom Peter knew and was able to show him there was this world out there. So that was the pathway to it. And I think he shaped, he shaped uh, Roger's game. I mean, Dave McPherson was telling me the Aussie coach that basically, you know, how Roger, when he hits his shots, uh, what's his trademark? I'm sure, you know, Val, he finishes the shot. He keeps his eye on the contact point. That's why his shots have that polish to them. Like a golfer watching the tee after the drive is gone. It's seemed unique to me. I'd never seen anybody else do it that often and pretty much every shot. And McPherson told me, he said, no, no, actually, you know, you know, who did it was Peter Carter. So the connections for people who knew them both, now, Darren Cahill gets still gets very emotional when he gets around Roger because it's you keep seeing Peter Carter. So I think all those stuff allowed Roger to believe that he could make it at a high level. Peter Carter would tell him that he could and others. And so he shaped the game and, and shaped the belief. And then Peter Carter was killed in 2002, as you mentioned, uh, on safari in South Africa, which was a place that Federer's had encouraged him to go on his honeymoon and to uh, because obviously uh, Roger's mom is from there and a lot of connections to that country. So I think the death of Peter hit them on many levels, certain a bit of guilt, I'm sure, even though you know, it's really not their fault, but it was because of their idea and uh, where it happened, it was hard not to feel something, you know, some connection to that. And then also I think Roger had not, was not working with Peter Carter directly at that point as a coach. He'd chosen Peter Lundgren to go on the tour with former Swedish player. And I think he had plans. Yeah, I get the sense from talking to Roger and other people that he was going to work with Peter Carter again sometime down the road. He had that plan. And so Peter's death was tremendously painful. Also, Roger was 21 years old at that time. I mean, I think you lose somebody at any time in your life, it's painful, but to lose at that age, especially somebody, the first person who really has a, you know, real importance to you, that's always extremely powerful. And I think it took him a while to absorb it. But I, you know, in the book, I talk about Peter Smith receiving an email from Roger, not long after Peter Carter's death. And Peter Smith was Peter Carter's childhood coach and a very close friend of his. And he said, um, 
you know, Roger basically told me, he said, I think about Peter Carter all the time. I'm going to commit myself to being what he thought I could be, the best player I can be. And uh, I'm, I'm committed to doing that. And that was his mission. And I think he accomplished it. But I think that thread, without that, that was a very pivotal time in Roger's career. I'm not sure he would have had that commitment and that sense of mission without Peter's uh, you know, tragic death. I'm sure we'd all trade it for Peter to be alive, but I think Roger was able to channel that grief and, and use it in a very positive way. And I think he has honored Peter Carter's memory with his career, no doubt. He has all 20 Grand Slams, 103 titles, 312 weeks at world number one. I think uh, I think that all speaks for itself. But uh, a couple more just before I let you go, Chris, and I appreciate your time. Uh, he's, what would you say after all the 80 people that you spoke to, his <laughs> greatest accomplishment in terms of biggest win and the greatest moment of anguish in Federer's career? In tennis terms, you mean? Yes. I mean, yeah, because yeah, obviously the greatest moment of anguish would have been what happened to Peter yes, Carter, of course, I think. Yeah. But I mean, I, I would say, you know, achievement-wise, I, I honestly, I mean, obviously winning the French Open was pivotal in 2009 for him because it was the one he was missing. And honestly, if he didn't win it that year, I'm not sure he ever would have because, you know, Nadal reasserted himself and Djokovic emerged as probably the second best clay court player, which was a role Roger Long had. So it was kind of then or never in a lot of ways, and he did it. So I think that is probably the most important of his victories. But I think the one that probably gave him the most pleasure of all from talking to him about it and just witnessing it was 2017 Australian Open. And then that started off this approach coming back from injury for him, six months off, pressure was off. I don't think expectations were very high, even not his own. And he just played wonderful tennis and and really showed all that he could still do. And then he rode that to number one at, at 36, which is a tremendous achievement. So I think that whole cycle would be his most satisfying moment. And I think most devastating loss would have one time been the 08 final Wimbledon to Rafa for sure in that great match. But I think he came to terms with that. And I think both he and Nadal have come to realize over time, and I talk about this a lot in the book, talking to Nadal as well, is that you know their rivalry and that match and the role that it played in their careers, I think did them both a lot of good and it both and their own you know, careers or their own businesses and the sport itself, a lot of good because of what it represented and the attention that it brought. And then ultimately I think brought them closer together over time, but the Djokovic loss at Wimbledon in 2019 and that final with two match points with Roger at the stage in his career that he was with what that would have meant. That would have been his greatest achievement. And he was with, literally within, I'm not kidding Val, and as you remember from watching the match, it's you know 40 15 match point on his serve. He hits a first serve down the tee. Djokovic is leaning uh, slice. The wide open middle is there, and Roger hits the tape with the serve. It would have been an ace. And then he loses. The, then he goes on to lose the two points and doesn't doesn't win the match. But I mean, how close can you get? And he was playing so zen like tennis all the way through that period. Novak as well, but. It was Rogers on Rogers' racket, and he couldn't do it. It's that, that has to be something he'll think about. I mean, he's won twenty. You know, did he need another one? In many ways, no. But to get he to have gotten that close and not achieve that, knowing what it would have meant, and I think that's what he said afterward: missed opportunity, and and it was. It definitely was. As a sporting fan, I think that was probably one of the most heartbreaking moments I've had as a fan watching and staying up till I think it was four thirty in the morning a.m. Here and yeah, it was it was honestly one of the most heart wrenching just to see Roger 
go from being so close and you see that lady in the fan holding her one finger up saying one more and then half an hour later it's just completely flipped and Novak Djokovic is the champion. I think you could see in Roger that he was he was absolutely gutted and he took a little bit of time off after that. I think he went caravanning and and took some time off to to recuperate and he still finished the year strongly, but I think you're right. That would definitely be the one that's eating him alive. But uh, just before I do let you go, Chris, we'll move back to the US Open and Give me your picks for the win for the male uh, for the men's event and the women's event because uh, the women's event has so many narratives that could eventuate. And look, is the Grand Slam going to happen? You know, I I am much better at analyzing after the fact than I am at predicting. That's just, I mean, maybe except for my exception of that Basel uh, Davis Cup tie when I saw Roger winning Wimbledon multiple times. That's that's a rarity for me. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm much better at analyzing after the fact. But I, I've had a feeling just based on what you mentioned before Val about the fact that the three guys he's probably going to have to go through are all guys he's played in grand slam finals this year. And these are guys that are emerging players and getting better all the time, I think. And you can look at Zverev. It's obviously got some off court issues right now, which are not good, but the uh, level of play is very high and he has improved. His forehand is much better already. Medvedev looks great so far. And Berrettini is obviously the most erratic of the bunch and maybe not the most balanced player with the, you know, the forehand heavy style that he has and the huge serve and Novak tends to be able to exploit that, but he's still a danger man. So I think having those three guys go up against them round by round to end it, that's a hell of a challenge. And I personally don't think Novak's going to make it. I I think, I think one of those guys is going to trip him up. And so, and I think it's been an emotional, amazing year for him in a grand slam context, but he hasn't been dominant outside of the slams really at all. Novak, he's had a lot of, he hasn't played that much, but he's obviously the Olympic loss and other losses early in the year. He hasn't he hasn't been in hasn't been as like his amazing year of 2011 when he for most of the season just completely dominated. This is a different time, so I, th- I think he is somebody who could lose. I, you know, if I had somebody to play a match for my life at the moment, it would probably be Novak for sure. But I think yeah. he's got three matches to play, so I I don't see it. I, I think Medvedev's got a good shot, and I think Zverev's got a good shot to win. And on the women's side, you know. It's really tricky to say because I feel like uh, it is a bit of a roulette wheel spinning with the women's game right now. I mean, Barty was my pick coming in. I think she, I really honestly think she threw that match away against, uh, against Shelby Rogers. It's, it's a pity to see her do that. I think she's come a long way mentally and showed a lot at Wimbledon when she didn't serve it out against Pliskova, but then bounced back. And against Shelby, that's a match she should have won. And I think this is kind of her moment. So I, you don't want to squander too many of those, but now that that hasn't happened, I mean, Who's playing the best tennis right now? You know, Pliskova is a good call. Court's playing pretty quick. It's definitely playing well for big servers, and that would be a nice sentimental call in a lot of ways. Um, Andrescu's impressed me, the way she's playing, um, coming back, but she doesn't have a lot of matches under her belt. So I, I guess I could go with Pliskova if I had to make a choice at this point. But it's, I think women's tennis these days, one of the great things about it is you just don't know. There's a blanket over 30 players who could win it in the women, win it in the women's game. And I, I do agree. I think it is going to be Pliskova. And hopefully for sentimental reasons, as you said, it'd be great to see her finally crack through and win that slam. But Chris, it has been a pleasure talking tennis with you. Um, it, it, you're one of the best tennis journalists in the world and te- tennis writers in history. And I can't wait for this book to arrive. Um, the master, the brilliant career of Roger Federer. It's out now at all good books, um, bookstores around the world. Please buy it. It is fantastic. And it's supporting a great journalist in, uh, in Chris Clary and, and Tennis Ryder. Thank you very much for joining us on uh, on Breakpoint Podcast. 
Well, thank you very much. Those are nice words, and I really appreciate them. And uh, I think you're exaggerating, but I appreciate it anyway. Uh, we don't exa- <laughs> we don't exaggerate on this show. Don't worry, we don't. Chris Clary, thank you very much. All the best, Val. Tennis media royalty, Chris Clary, there joining us on the show. Jeez, that I'm so upset you had Zoom problems, Joel. I'm I'm just devastated. Yeah. I really wanted you to be part of that chat, and bloody technology just screws us yet again. It's just. Oh, it's frustrating, but you can buy The Master at any good book retailer here in Australia and around the world. If you need to order it, do it. I'm still waiting for mine, Australia Post. Get your act together. Please get your act together because I'm dying to read this book. It's um, five out of five on Amazon, uh, 4.2 out of five on Goodreads, and it's in the um, the top 10 on the New York Times bestsellers list, which is any indication that this book is pure gold. But Joel, before we get to the Benoit of the Week, and you are in on a 50-meter run-up on this Benoit of the Week. You are fired up, and I can't <laughs> wait to hear why. But ESPN, the coverage here in Australia. Now, we've been blessed with nine, and we have a free-to-air broadcaster taking the um, the Australian Open in January, which is fantastic. Then Channel 9 took the French Open, had two channels running plus Stan Sport in a partnership there where we could watch it and live stream. Of course, you have to pay for Stan. And then in Wimbledon, we had the exact same situation there. Since 2017, we've been subject to the ESPN coverage here in Australia, and I don't like it at all. I can't stand it. Absolutely cannot stand it, Joel. <laughs> I don't I need... Kind of you've about this for a while. I don't need, and I say this every US Open. I think I've said it the, the last five... Ever since it's been done, I think I've said it every US Open. We don't need US Open primetime. We don't need an opening. We don't need a five setter to be cut short because of an opening ceremony and Shania Twain performing. I feel like a woman. We don't need it. <laughs> we don't need the. We don't need split screen with two different sets of commentators commentating each match. I can't see it. I can't see what's going on. I want one match. I don't want Murray and City Pass in the fifth set cut to watch Coco Golf and Magda Lynette play. All respect to the two of them, but go on a separate channel. I don't need that. And here in Australia, you have to have a Foxtel subscription to actually watch all of the courts. If you have KO, which supposedly has a partnership with Foxtel, you can you can only watch three courts. And after day four, there's nothing really of relevance on those courts. No disrespect to those other players. But if I want to watch a five-setter on grandstand and I'm subject to a mixed doubles match, you're not really a happy consumer, are you? Mm, not really. So I don't get it. The commentary has been subpar. The questions asked the players has been subpar. Um, and, and cutting from matches to to go to other matches without real warning or telling us where we can go um, or just the lack of viewing options that we have here in Australia, it's not on. And I can't wait for SBS to take the, the quarterfinals and beyond because at least they take the world feed coverage. I love the callers that they use. They sound good. They've got Nick Lester. They usually have Robbie Koenig, who we've had on the show. Absolutely brilliant. But some of the... Some of just, it's just not good. It's terrible. As a Grand Slam nation, we deserve more. Yes, I understand we have to pay for a streaming service in stand to watch the French in Wimbledon and all the courts. But Channel 9 at least have the two channels running. They at least do it, do a good job. ESPN is catered to Americans. As a Grand Slam nation, to promote the sport in this country, we need an Australian broadcaster. And I hope next year we can have that Australian broadcaster with an Australian host actually giving us what we want as an Australian tennis population. We want to know about the Aussies. We want good access to watch the Aussies. And we want that, uh, We like Duckworth, 
weren't able to watch his opening round. Alexi Popperin, you weren't able to watch his opening round. Neither Jordan Thompson, and Thompson had a five-set win over Gianluca Magat of, of Italy. So this is the stuff that it's not right. It hasn't been right for years. And I miss the days where it was Adam Peacock and Wally Masur calling uh, calling the Aussie matches on Fox uh, on Fox Sports because that's what we deserve. And as, as an Australian country, as a, as a holder of one of the four most coveted tournaments in the world, we deserve more. And that's my that's my take. <laughs> well said. Yeah, can't but, really argue. Um, yeah, I think I think yeah, it's important that yeah, in Australia we do get a broadcaster taking the rights. I think that's that's really, really important. Mm. Just for the promotion of the game, Joel, because, yeah, we watch ESPN. Yeah, it, it's just we don't need that. We don't need the loudness of it. Like, I'm just happy watching tennis. I don't mind, but I just – the commentary, I don't know, it just doesn't, it hasn't really clicked for me. It never really has. I've never been a massive fan of it. And, look, each to their own. A lot of people love the ESPN coverage and good on them. I, I, I don't – you're allowed to like it. It's just, this is my opinion. Mm. And I feel as though we deserve more as a country and in terms of a tennis country, because we want to grow this sport. We want this sport to grow. We want to be like Italy. They're flourishing with so many players. They're they're coming from everywhere. And we've got Ash Barty. We've got the world number one. We just need, we need more to come from our media to help promote this sport. And that's why we're doing this podcast. And that's why a lot of other people are working in the tennis industry to help promote the sport. And that's the crux of this entire argument. We deserve more. But it's time for our favourite segment of the week, named after our favourite yes. Frenchman, Benoit Pair, the Benoit of the week, Joel. I know, as I said, you're coming in off a long run-up. So let me know Let me know who Benoit is this week, and I'm just going to sit back, make a cup of tea, and let you go. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, uh, kids in cars, firstly, you've been warned. Oh, no. Um, yeah. Uh, so Benoit of the week this week is without question, and he has had a bad couple of weeks. Joe Rogan, you absolute fuckwit. Now, I, I just Val. I mean, we have we're in we're in September 2021. The pandemic has been going for what 18 months now. Mm-hmm. We've got human vaccines. We've got three or four of them. You could even argue five or six if you believe in what the Chinese and the Russians are doing. But Joe Rogan having ivermectin, a drug to deworm horses and dogs to cure COVID. This guy has, what, millions and millions and millions of subscribers on YouTube and Spotify and everywhere. We have approved human vaccines and we've got this idiot spreading bullshit like that. My God, it is no wonder we are going to be in this mess for a long time yet. And our next guest, Joe Rogan, joins us on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, he's not. No, he's not welcome, especially in Australia. Yeah. We are absolutely in the pits. And then we've got someone as influential as that sprouting bullshit like that. Joe Rogan, go and absolutely effing diddle yourself, mate. There doesn't get, I don't think there's a more Australian, uh, Australian abusive word than effing diddle yourself. I, I think, um, yeah, I, I reckon that <laughs> takes the cake. But look, well said, Joel. I think the fact that he's he's got, and look, we spoke about this at length in 2020 about Novak Djokovic and what he was saying and what he was doing in terms of the pandemic. And then you've got a guy like this who's got a massive, massive global reach yeah. of people that know who yeah. he is. And to be 
injecting yourself with that. It, Look, I've got no words. I genuinely have no oh, words, and that almost. Oh, actually, I have. I do have some words. I have some words. I have some words, and it's these. It's pretty simple. Get vaccinated, and get vaccinated with the stuff that is approved for human use, not for things that were made for horses. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Look, I I can't really add anything on top of that. I think it probably warrants more than one Benoit vote of the year because it's oh. one of the stupidest things anybody's done this year. But, um, yeah. It, it, Get in the bin. That's all, that's all we it's can ma- say. It's, it, it is absolute madness. I mean, like, we've still got people that are harping on about the long-term effects of a vaccine that has had probably billions, if not trillions of dollars of financial backing. I can't even fathom how many medical experts researching and working on this thing. Like, people talking about the long-term effects and all these hypotheticals and, they're, and, and are either not having it or returning to some other bullshit remedy, which doesn't work, like what old mate Joe has done and is pushing out to his followers. Get vaccinated. There's no reason not to be. Yep. And if you complain about masks, if you complain about lockdowns and you choose not to get vaccinated, well, shut up and stay in your room. Seriously. Yep. Just, oh, my God. I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm, I need to call off. I need to call off, though. Yep. Go, go have a cold shower, Joe. I think you need it after that. You're, uh, you're sweating bullets at the moment. But, no, look... I agree. You're 100% correct. And, and yeah, there's not really much more we can add. Joe Rogan, our uh, Benoit of the week for this week, the second week of the US Open. Speaking of, before we go, I want your picks. Men's and women's, who wins? Uh, men's? Look, I, I, I want to say someone else, but I just I can't look past Novak. I just can't. Um, yeah, I think Novak over... Medvedev in the final. And on the women's side, this one's really, really interesting, actually. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Belinda Bencic to win. And I think she's going to knock over for, geez, it's a tough one. I think she's going to knock over Barbara Krejcikova in the final. All right, very good. I don't think Krejcikova is getting past Sabalenka. I think it is going to be Sabalenka in the final, and I think Pliskova will beat her in the women's. Uh, I think echoing Chris Clary's thoughts. And look, I don't think Novak's going to win it. I just, I don't. It's probably more hope than anything. Uh, but I just, <laughs> I think Zverev's in a really good mental space at the moment. But I think if he comes up against Daniel Medvedev, Medvedev is my winner. And I think Zverev is going to beat Novak in the semis. I just have a feeling that that's what's going to happen. I just think things are set up for Zverev to do it and do something great. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's mm. my that's my winner. Uh, Medvedev over Zverev and Pliskova over Sabalenka in the final. But Joel, it has been an absolute pleasure as always talking tennis with you and I uh, can't wait to do it all again next week. Yeah, it's been a good show, Val. And uh, yeah, let's bloody enjoy the final week of the US Open. Yeah, it is going to be awesome. And I'm so excited to see what is going to transpire at Flushing Meadows. This has been Breakpoint Podcast. Val Febo and Joel Frucci joining you. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, Instagram Breakpoint Podcast, and Facebook. Search us on there as well. And subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all your favorite podcasting platforms. We're on there. So give us a like, give us a share, give us a rating and a subscribe. We appreciate it all the support. We can't wait to see what happens at Flushing Meadows over the next few days. Tune in and we'll catch you next week for to do it all again on Breakpoint Podcast.